the easiest part of my journey, I'd say, has been the climb in, in the fact that there's always been somebody there to, to maybe gain inspiration from or gain whatever it might be. Like there's a path. It's already been trailed. Like you've got it. It's all good. Um, I think it's become more challenging when you kind of get to the sharper end of that, that spike and there's no longer that. I know for sure if, you know, I got to the top of the spike and it's a, it's a pretty lonely place and it, it, it's almost like you're running, running, running. And then you, you like, you run off the edge of a cliff and you're just free falling or you're in, you got nothing to hang on to and you're just kind of left to your own devices. And I think some people, they can, they can manage that quite well and, you know, maybe stay still and just, just be good with it. But for me, it kind of sent me into a bit of a spiral and it, it almost had an uneasy feeling to it. And it maybe took me a few, I'd say even years to get back to ground to be able to build a different foundation of a, you know, an individual foundation to support from and then kick back off. With that. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 35 of the Waterski Podcast with none other than the man himself, Will Asher. Finally get to publish this. We tried twice, uh, meaning that the first time we recorded, this was over um, Skype whilst I was in self-isolation and he was in Claremont. Four hours in, my computer basically crashed. Um, so I lost my part of the audio, making the interview really not publishable. So I just drove down to Claremont whenever I had a chance and uh, we recorded again. So we'll refer to this episode as 2.0 and the first recording, which didn't get published as 1.0. So just to give you a sense of while you hear a lot of 1.0s and 2.0s in this episode, episode that is brought to you by the Flowpoint Method. Flowpoint Method is a brand new online water ski training program developed by Jenny LeBaugh and Marcus Brown, who is one of the guests of this show, episode 10. If you haven't heard it, like listen to that one, go and check it out. So really, the reason why this program started is that performance in any sport, including water skiing, depends on a lot of factors, right? And Marcus and Jenny really took a holistic approach in creating the Flowpoint Method. And really the Flowpoint Method is for people who are truly committed to take their skiing to the next level, no matter what level they're at, right? Uh, this program covers technique, fitness, nutrition, and mindset. Um, really a first when it comes to a holistic approach to life on the water. I've been in the program. I love it. Uh, this is week three for me. Uh, they have the right approach and this is also why I'll be collaborating with them on the mindset section of the, the Flowpoint method, um, which will be coming up in the ensuing weeks. With daily and weekly updates and an extremely extensive library of videos, instructionals and writings, you can finally remove all the guesswork and get the most out of your time on the water. And you can become a member of the Flowpoint method by going to thewaterskipodcast.com slash Flowpoint method, one word, uh, or you can click in the link in the show notes. If you are considering the program and you want to support the podcast, please use the link on the 
show notes or go to thewaterskipodcast.com slash method. Well, without further ado, let's jump into part one of three of my interview with Will. Enjoy. Well, should we start? Will, take two, man. Take two. <laughs> let's I, try this again. Well, first time I think we got close to cracking four hours. So. Yeah, we'll see where this one goes, right? Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Welcome back to the Warski Podcast. Thank you. Um, I know we've already spoken quite a bit, but uh, we're just going to start from the beginning and see where this one goes. Who knows? Maybe we go slightly different or we go back to some of the things we've already talked about. Uh, but we'll start with the usual, the beginnings, like how you got into the sport. Yeah, so for me, is it seems like you know, listening to most people's story is all about the family. So my, my family is... It's a water skiing family, true and true, pure bloods. Um, you know, back a few generations, my granddad, they used to go on holiday in Scotland, my grandparents, and, you know, take my mum and my uncles, and they'll go up there, and he'd, they're one of the places they stayed, they had water skiing, and that was something they really loved. Um, so then he figured out a way to do it in the local place where they lived, which was Tattishall, and he ended up you know, becoming the chairman of the club and setting it up and doing all that stuff. But he knew he wanted to have his own space and he found some some water in Lincoln, which is, you know, now become Hazelwood Ski World, which is home of the headwind, all these right. fun things. They they put on pro events and that's basically where I spent my childhood was at Hazelwood Ski World skiing and training and playing and just generally that was that was my life. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing that we, we were spoken about. You said you didn't know that there was any other option, right? Like you grew up no, like not almost not knowing that there wasn't a thing called not water skiing. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it, was, it was such a natural thing for us and the family to be water skiing. Everyone did it. You know, it was, um, we were the first kids in this generation, I would say, of our family, you know, of, of my of my parents and my uncles, you know, we're the old, we're the oldest cousins. Um, so at the beginning it was, you know, like me and my brother and then we were at the ski club and they had members and, um, I just don't, I don't ever remember it being an option to not be water skiing. Right. If, um, it was just what we did as a family. That was, that was our thing. And do you remember your first set? Yeah, I do. Um, it's we had this we have this thing at the, the club. It's called the blue board, and it's basically like a rectangular thing. And it's got some rocker in it, and it's got some string and some rope to it. And I think most clubs these days have some variation of that at their place. And it was probably just a whimsical thing. And my dad's like, "Hey, let's you know go have a play on the blue board," or maybe I even asked him to go play on it. And that was probably my first time getting up behind the boat. You know, maybe they even pulled me along the shoreline on the rope, you know, that, that kind of deal. And, um, and we also had a pair of skis around. They were like the Donald Duck skis. They were red with a yellow Donald Duck on them. And that was like the pair of skis that pretty much got every kid up skiing. So I was able to relive my youth over many years and see these kids kind of learn on the same set of skis that I lived on, I learned to, to ski on. Yeah, that's funny how that works sometimes, right? I mean, I've, I've seen it at ski school. Oh, that's the ski I used to ski on. And then you're skiing on it. That's pretty cool. You know? Yeah, like 20 years later, they're still floating around somewhere. You know, you know, they keep showing up. So um, in a way, you're able to relive that first 
experience through through that yeah through that symbol skiers. of beginning to ski yeah yeah that's right cool. all right so those were the first days getting on the water um how about your first tournament um yeah i remember i remember this one clearly it was um at, at lincoln we had lots of tournaments so there's always you know growing up there were, there were big tournaments there but i i mean it's just for me it's part of life like that thing just those things just went on i wasn't really aware of maybe what's happening on the water but there was a kid before me his name was michael bray and he was just a couple of days older than i was but he went before me and he skied and i saw him he ran he he ran i think one and a half on his first pass and then he fell in and he, he swam into shore and he started playing in the sandpit right and all i could think when i was on the start dock because it took a while for the boat to get to the end and then come back and pick me up it's like man he's playing in the sandpit already like i want to go play in the sandpit so i put my ski on and i think i turn around one turn around two and then cut straight across to him to go play in the sandpit and then i still remember my first my first score in a tournament was two on start speed because all i wanted to do was go and play right that right cool. and that and that was kind of a consistent thing for you right you said like you there wasn't an option to be a non to not be a water skier that was clear but you also loved doing other stuff growing up, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I didn't really like to, like, tournament water ski. Like, I didn't, that wasn't, I liked to play, and all I really wanted to do was play. So at, at our club in England, there's kind of two lakes. you got the front lake and the back lake, and the back lake's where all the playing happens, and on the front lake's where all the serious stuff happens. You know, it's where all the serious guys go, and they train, they do their things, you know, like, my brother, he was always six sets a day and, you know, getting all his tricks on, jump, all that stuff in. And all I ever wanted to do was go and play. Um, but, you know, just kind of, I don't know if it's watching my brother do it, like, so much. And then maybe I wasn't able to, I didn't feel strong enough to do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe because I was a couple of years younger. It was kind of demoralizing. So I, I just kind of was drawn more to the play side of it. Okay. You know, so Tom wasn't like, Tom was kind of like serious from the beginning. Is, would that yeah, be correct? All, all I remember of Tom in the beginning, you know, when I was a kid, like it was no problem for him to have six sets a day. It was no problem for him to, you know, in the winter when we're breaking the ice, he's going to have the four trick sets and they're going to be focused. And every time he goes out, he's going to be learning new tricks and doing new things. And mm -hmm. I remember when he was a kid, he was, you know, like at 14, he's starting with a back to front flip or you know right. which wasn't really a thing yep. back then you know he was pretty ahead of his game as far as that stuff you know he put the strap on his heel pretty early and kind of got rid of all those line tricks like he was searching early yeah i think so i'm not sure where it where it all came from it was kind of a little over my head a lot of the things we learned came from videos right you know we had the vhs and the, all this stuff from from different events but were you, so kind of connected to that, were you like consuming that stuff or was it just like, ah, okay, you know? Like were you almost being made to watch them or were you like interested in watching? No, I was, I was definitely interested. Yeah, I just, I, I don't remember taking it serious. I don't, I'm not really sure why. Um, my, my feeling is I just, I want to play, but I love watching the videos. Like we had the 95 Worlds in Rock Rune yeah. or um, we had a couple of Masters old masters videos and um 
then we had a lot of the English ones, like the Carlsberg Masters or the Teesside Masters, which are some of the old British tournaments. British tournaments that had you know some of the great skiers in them. I just remember that was the way we learned to do things was to watch some old videos and try and piece it together. You know, yep. study videos of Wade and Andy, and I always enjoyed slalom. That was always, you know, your thing. Yeah, but also you told me that at first. Maybe because of the environment, your family, Hazelwoods. At first, it was about jump. Yeah. I mean, if you know anything about Hazelwoods, it's jump, jump, jump. I mean, we got, I don't know, like, it's just set up for jump. I mean, it's always a headwind. It's colder water, so it feels nice. And then my family, they're just, everything they do, everything has to be right, or they want it to be right. Like the ramps always set up, the courses are always set up, they always have strong boats, they always have nice ropes. Like every kind of step of the way, they've they've tried to have the right equipment and, and set it up nicely. But for me, jump was like something I was very passionate about for a long time. And even to this day, I wouldn't say that jumps like left my body of a feeling. I mean, I know I could never do it because I'm just not really the right build for it. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, yours, like just diverging back to Hazelwoods for a second, you, you told me that like Hazelwoods was ahead of the game, or at least they always tried to be ahead of the game, right? Weren't they the first ones to get perfect pass, the first one to get, you know? Yeah, they always wanted to be kind of ahead of the game. So they, I remember we were one of the, or probably the first club in Europe to get perfect pass. Um, then when Zerov came out, they were right away getting that. And then, you know, we're the first club to have the system that raised and lowers the ramp. And we yeah. had the controls on the shore. And it's like, you want to go five foot, five and a half, you just spin the dial, ramp goes up, ramp goes down. You got the button there for the water and all this stuff. So we, was, I think, like, the story I've always got from Tim and George and my granddad is like, the water skiing has never been they've never tried to have the water ski club be the business. So mm-hmm. they've never treated it necessarily as like a profit loss thing. It's more like this is our passion. And so anything we're going to do is to make our passion as good as we can make it. Yeah. So it was really, if, if they could get the club to a place where it kind of made enough money to balance itself out where it maybe didn't lose money, but it wasn't necessarily a place where they're trying to make money from. They had other, other avenues of business and, you know, yeah. commercial stuff, but, um, yeah. So everything, I just remember it, you know, we got the best, we had the strongest boats when they could have them. The, if the ramp surface didn't feel right, they'll redo the ramp surface. If the weight was wrong, they would rebalance the ramp. So everything was always geared to jump, not necessarily geared to slalom. That's yeah. I was going to get there. So, yeah. I mean, historically Hazelwoods has not been known for a slalom lake. It was, it was a it was a reclaimed gravel pit, so it was pretty deep, you know, like 20, 30 feet, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then the shape of the lake was backfilled. So they would backfill with gravel or rocks or reclaimed building material, that kind of stuff. So it doesn't have any kind of a shelf. So it's basically water to bank. Mm-hmm. So it just created this bit of a bathtub event, uh, effect. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, it was pretty rolly and, you know, it's England, so it's pretty cold. So it kind of made a bit of a hostile asylum environment. But I think looking back, what it made for me was an environment where when I went anywhere else, it kind of made it feel good. Yeah. Like I knew I wasn't probably going to get a personal best at Hazelwood, but I'd get 
when I left, I would get at least what I could get at Hayes Woods plus. And has that been the experience? Like if you think back, was that what was going on in your early tournaments? Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. I, I'd never remember. I'd always hear stories of people like, well, I could do this in practice and I'll get the tournament. I'll be down a couple of pass or buoys or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Cause anything I do, if I can do it in practice, I'm at least going to do it in tournament. If not, I'm going to PB when I leave the site. Mm-hmm. I think it comes, it comes down to a few things. I think it's, um, sure that you know back then the it wasn't that easy to ski there but then i know there was like my family wouldn't cheat to make me feel better about myself on the day of practice right. like the i grew up with very straight driving grew up with you know actual times if not a little bit fast yep you know the ropes are always actual the course was you know homologated several times a year so it was everything was super precise and active not on the easy side definitely on the hard side and I think it kind of set up that environment for things being a little bit tougher in practice to then ultimately succeed in competitions. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I wonder, maybe we can get to this later, but I wonder if this is something you can stretch on as you become a better skier, hmm. you know? Because I think that there's a certain point where, like, say, at your level, if you need to try 41, like, conditions need to be to a certain level for you to be able to master the pass uh i don't know you know you see what i mean like yeah. i don't know how long you can stretch that but, but certainly certainly it, it it makes a lot of sense at least to me yeah i think it does i think it makes i mean there's there's no there's no denying the fact that Hayeswoods has produced champions not just myself or my brother or my uncle but lots of other champions whether they be you know alex anthony yeah, junior world champion or Steve Critchley or yeah. Charlotte Wharton, Chris Wharton, you know, so many great names, my uncle Tim, Mike, but so many great names have, have, have been through the system, you could say, of the club. And for me, it's just what I always knew. So I, I didn't really think it was anything different. I didn't realize that that was the right or wrong way to do it. And yeah. I didn't, you know, I, it wasn't like I was getting a clear understanding of how anybody else was training in the world because I didn't have access to anybody else in the world. I yeah. trained, I was very insulated or very isolated in, in that regard. And we very much just trained within the family. And what you were telling me is that despite the fact that you were some, somewhat isolated, like I think you told me like, yeah, if I was driving an hour to go ski, it was a bit strange. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, at the club uh, or lakes nearby, there was this bit of like internal tournament, right? I'm, I'm assuming I'm just putting things here, but maybe you were trying to run 28 off, 14 yeah. meters. And there was this 40 year old guy who was trying to run 28 off. So banter on the dock, try, oh, yeah. I ran it today, you didn't, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, so we grew up in England. I think they have a very unique system. And I, I'm not really sure why the whole world doesn't implement this system, but they have a league system and it's you know division four, three, two, one and premier. So when you start out your division four and you know, once you reach a certain level of skiing, you go up to division three, two, one premier, you know, that's, that's kind of premiers, you know, open elite, whatever it is. So along the way, since I was a kid, I've been competing against people at my exact same level mm -hmm. within reason. And the goal of most of the people at that level is to try and move up in a division. You know, you want to get from four to three, three to two, two to one. And the ultimate goal is to get to premier. And I had that progression my whole life, but I, you know, division four, you might be competing against someone who's 50 or 60 years old because, yeah. you know, their personal best is something at 
32 miles an hour mm-hmm. or whatever the criteria might be. So all the way along, all the way from day one of competing, I've had little carrots in front of me. I've, you know, I've looked up to the people. If I was in division four, I'd look up to the people in division three and be like, wow, you know, I, that's, that's somebody I think maybe I can, it's attainable to compete against that guy next year. Right. And then, you know, and you can imagine when you're in, in division four, you're looking up to the premiers. I mean, they're the gods. Right. You know, yeah. in, yeah. in our world, in our bubble. And, you know, I don't, I'm not even aware of pro skiing at this point. I don't even know there's a whole different level of right. Right. European skiing or all that stuff. See, but, for me, it was a lot of, like when I was going to nationals back home mm. and I would get to see people like, you know, Stefano Palombo mm-hmm. or Fabio Yanni, like, or Ghiblini. Chaponi, Ch- yeah, you know, yeah. like ripping through 39. Mm. I was like, what? Like, yeah. I didn't even know you could do that, right? Um, I thought, I think these experiences are important, you know, like when you get to, to see live in person, what is possible, I think it shapes us, doesn't it? It really does. You've got to, it's, it's nice in life to have someone to aspire to, or, or a level to aspire to, or, a, the, the easiest part of my journey, I'd say has been the climb in, in the fact that there's always been somebody there to to maybe gain inspiration from or gain whatever it might be like there's a path it's already been trailed like you've got it it's all good um i think it's become more challenging when you kind of get to the sharper end of that that spike and there's no longer that i know for sure if you know i got to the top of the spike and it's a it's a pretty lonely place and it, it it's almost like you're running 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 and then you like you run off the edge of a cliff and you're just free falling or you're in, you got nothing to hang on to and you just kind of left to your own devices. And I think some people, they can, they can manage that quite well and, you know, maybe stay still and just, just be good with it. But for me, it kind of sent me into a bit of a spiral and it, it almost had an uneasy feeling to it. It maybe took me a few, I'd say even years to get back to ground to be able to build a different foundation of a, you know, an individual foundation to support from yeah. and then kick back off with that. When would you say that started? Like when would, when did you start that feeling that, you know, it started to become a lonely place? Was it like a certain level that you attained, certain wins you got? What, do you remember the time? Well, I think it was, uh, I'd say it's probably around 2008. You know, I had a pretty good year. I won you know, eight, nine, ten events, something like that you know, one in the world, I felt like I had a bit of a, you know, obviously you start to get a, a feeling that you have a, a decent competitive advantage over the, the, the people around you. Um, I mean, and then you can just kind of get slapped back pretty quick. You know, like 2009 wasn't like 2008, you know, people trained hard over the winter, they improved. And then, you know, 2009 was not like 2008, you know, won a couple of events, you know, other people are there, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, it's just this all along the journey. It's, it's, it's been a humbling experience. And in the beginning, it kind of sucks to get humbled. Yeah. You know, it's not a, it's not a particularly nice feeling, but it's ultimately a really good thing to happen to somebody sometimes. Yeah. For me, it was great. It was a good, good thing to bring me down and bring me, um, I feel better being humbled than not humbled. Right. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Gives you gives you an idea of what might be missing. 
yeah, it, it can, I think I got to the point where I was like, eh, I don't really feel like I need to push this anymore. Like I can just stick here and I can, I'll just ride this out for yeah. a while, you know, and I'll, um, it's working, right? So why changing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's working. So why not change it? And it, it kind of stuck around there for a year or two and that was mm -hmm. fine. But then, you know, the levels progress and the people around you, they're not, they're not stood still. They're, they're working hard. They're working harder than you could imagine that somebody could and they're improving and people you didn't think maybe could run that amount of buoys. They figure stuff out, new equipment, new training, whatever. And yeah. it, it's just a, it's a forever challenging experience. Even, you know, coming on like 20 years of doing this and the challenge has not got less. Oh, for sure. I mean, for sure. Even I'd say the last three, four years is more challenging than it's ever been mm -hmm. as, as far as, you know, ability levels. And Let's go to a few different challenges. I would be curious to hear the early challenges, right? Yeah. So eventually you got out of your bubble of Hazelwoods, you know, UK, about an hour drive far. Uh, what were what were the first like experiences maybe abroad or like first big tournaments like? Um, yeah, I wasn't super aware of much outside of my bubble. I mean, for me to, I was kind of spoiled where we were at Hazelwoods back to that. But within an hour of Hazelwoods, there was like ten ski lakes, ten mm. competition ski lakes, and which is crazy, you know, like it's not. You don't really think about that in England, but I think maybe because it's big gravel pit area or sand sand mines that kind of stuff and yeah. it was um i know the british federation in the early years really kind of my this is my kind of my granddad's time you know he was the chairman of the british federation and i think they they kind of built that whole club mentality and and built the thing of you know here's a, here's the blueprint for it you know you need a boat you need some club members this is how you make it happen and in different areas lots of people were able to make that happen so for me, growing up, I would compete at a lot of different events, but rarely more than an hour from my house. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be every weekend. There'd be something whether it's South Lake or Lound or Nottingham or you know, whatever. You know, yeah. there's a ton of different clubs, and um, that was kind of my my younger year experience. And then my my first real international experience was being picked for the British team, and they used to have one called the uh, uh, Three Nations. Italy, England, and France, I believe. And it was in Rivetta, Ravenna, Italy. Oh, okay. That was my first international event. I think that was in like 1994. And yeah, that was kind of my first experience of seeing people not speaking English. Right. Water skiing, right. which was kind of weird. Then you yeah. like to see, you got these, these kids, obviously raw kids, and they've got their coaches and they're taking it very serious. And they're like... They're flying their flags and they've got the team track suits and right, right. That, that was all very exciting as, as a kid. I remember that, but I'll tell you one thing that really screwed me up for school back home. Cause the one thing I realized is that everybody speaks English, which was not really good for me. I went back to high school and I remember saying to the French teacher, I'm like, why am I going to learn French? Like everyone, right. everyone speaks English. Yeah, yeah. Very, very young, naive outlook on it. I wish now I had picked up on the languages, but. Yeah, no, it's uh, especially us being from Europe, you know, like despite you guys are a little bit of an island outside of the mainland, there's, it's just so easy to meet people from different cultures that speak different languages. Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess see. I guess you were more exposed to different 
lots of different skiers at a young age. Than oh, I was, I was, because at ski school, when I was really young, Claudio already was building his name around Europe, so we had skiers from Switzerland. Mm. So that's already two languages outside of Italian. Because yeah. there's a part of Switzerland that speaks Italian, but then you have French and German. Yeah. Then Austria, Germany, you know, some, some skiers from, from around, some French skiers. So, but then again, I didn't speak all those languages. So my strategy was I was learning English in school. Let me try to speak English with these older people than me. Mm -hmm. And it worked out. I was wondering so, where your English came from because your dad doesn't speak a lick of it. Nope. No, no. And, <laughs> but uh, he regrets it like, like sure. kind of like what you experienced, like thinking back, right? He really regrets it not to pay attention in school. But then I think it's also your environment, right? Yeah. Like you didn't have the need for it because everyone speaks English. My dad grew up in a farm. So what is he, you know, yeah. as he said to me, oftentimes English is not going to feed the cows. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you know? I, I could see that, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and yeah. also with me, everyone wanted to practice their English on me. Exactly. So right. it's almost a, you know, it's a double edge, double negative for me. Yeah. I mean, not double negative. I got to speak to a lot of cool people. Yeah. I mean, I, the only words I could probably speak of any foreign language are not good words you ever want to repeat. Yeah, exactly. That's what you don't like junior Europeans, the bad words in everybody's language. <laughs> well, that what happened to me. My second trip was to Czech, Czech Czech, Republic. Czechoslovakia. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And so my first was in Italy. My second was in Czech, Czechoslovakia. And that was in Krenik, I believe. They had like a yellow ramp. That was yeah, weird. I remember those. Yellow or blue. Um, I think that might have been the first time I ever encountered T-Gas unless he was in Ravenna and I didn't realize it but um, yeah that was kind of a cool uh, they were exci like really exciting times looking back mm -hmm. yeah and they came and we spoke about it like they came from a different also um, I don't know how to say this like I'm trying to compare it to like a young kid in the United States or Canada or like these bigger countries like away from Europe, it's kind of like you grew up in your own lake. Maybe you're a part of a ski school, but maybe not. And you grew up skiing with mom and dad, and then eventually you go to a tournament, but everyone speaks English, so that's not a huge change, mm -hmm. right? Whereas then, and there certainly weren't readily available internet rankings. Like, so you literally showed up and like, yeah. ooh, who's that guy? Or, okay, oh, he can ski well, all mm -hmm. right. But, you know, like it was all very new, to the, from the beginning, I would say, no? Yeah, I'd, I'd, for, for most of my, my junior, you know, Do Bambino, Dauphine, junior, I started to recognize some faces, but, you know, up until, you know, under 14, under 16, I didn't really know who anybody was. Right. I'd show up to an event. I, I got picked for the team, so I knew I was good relative to England. Yeah. What does that mean? Not right. that much. Um, and then I knew I was at a foreign place and I knew normally if I left my site in England I'd at least be able to do what I did at home so you know yeah. I was always pretty strong as far as my performances if there's a if there's a score on the ranking list you could almost guarantee that's what I was going to do mm -hmm. at a tournament but as a junior I didn't know that there was like a ranking list and right you know I didn't follow I didn't, I didn't follow that there were other people in my situation around the world kind of doing the same thing and competing and 
traveling and yeah, and there wasn't like a event. life of a water skier hashtag that you could go to at age 13 and go, okay, I, I know this person. I've seen him yeah. online for two years. Oh, now I see them live at a ski lake. What's the difference, right? Like at yeah. the time, it was a bit different. And, and also at that time, it was like, just because somebody won one year didn't mean they were going to be there the next year. So it was, you know, there was, we didn't really get that consistency of athletes until, you know, more into the juniors or, yeah. uh, right, you know, first, second Definitely the juniors is kind of when it got a bit more consistent. Right. Um, but. So let me ask you, we didn't, I'd be curious to hear this because you certainly are someone who made it through the system um, and, you know, whichever system, you know, like whether it was your club or the British national team, and we'll talk about those, those years. Um, but you made it through and then you eventually got into the open category and became one of the best skiers of all time. But I'm sure that as you were growing up as a dolphin or junior, you remember some skiers that were super talented or very good that eventually faded away, hmm. right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, yeah, a lot. You know? A lot, yeah. So, the, I mean, the biggest name that comes to me is, um, is a French guy, Patrick Julian Esnard. And I don't know if you know that name. No. But... I mean, he was a phenomenal skier and then one year he just didn't show up and he actually had a bad motorcycle accident mm. and he um, had complications with his leg and, you know, he wasn't able to ski to that level anymore. But as a kid, he was like my, my like, rive, my, my, my rival. Yeah. He was like the guy that I'm like, how am I going to compete against this guy? <laughs> I mean, when I was 14, he's like, you know, he wasn't a white guy, he's a black guy, but yeah. he's big and built. Like when we were 14, I'm looking at this guy, he's got biceps like this and he's pecs and he's six pack. And I'm looking at him like, man, you're a specimen <laughs> right. from God. I don't right. even know, like, how am I supposed to compete? And his scores were there and all this stuff. And so, yeah, he was, he was like one of my big motivations when I was a kid to like, well, I'm, if I'm ever going to do anything European level, I got to compete against this guy. He's, um, you know, he brought down from the heavens. He's right. no, no way he's my age. They forged his passport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I guess it's normal in all the sports and, and, you know, like you grow up and then you see people kind of phasing in and out. But I just find it interesting how those early competitive experiences push us, right? So for me, I had Stelio Merola. He was right in Italy. We were toe to toe from 14 until 20, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it was actually. Like I had it more readily available. He lived in Naples, so it was a, a f we never really skied together, but we would ski at tournaments together, even locally. And I just think that, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot of people that shaped us into the skiers we are. Mm -hmm. They might not be around now, they don't ski anymore, or, you know, they mm -hmm. didn't progress. But sometimes it's, it's interesting to think back and like, oh, wow, if he wasn't there, would I have reached that level, right? Yeah. it's and it you don't you don't really think about it until i guess after the fact of mm -hmm. how that may have influenced your your careers along the way yeah you know, as far as i mean it's i mean it's more evident now in the in the pro side you know people come and go quite frequently like yep. you're there one year you're not there the next or um you know you can have a run for a year or two and then suddenly you, you can't piece it back together Right. And, um, 
and you definitely get influenced or challenged by these people along the way. Lapointe always said to me, it's one thing to have, you know, one season or two seasons, but to be able to roll that into a whole career takes a whole, whole different kind of growth out of an athlete. Yeah. You've got to be able to evolve. You've got to be able to change who you are or, or the way you approach things. I bet that was an interesting conversation from a couple of people that actually managed to do it. I mean, I would say you and Bob are like clear examples of people that managed to reinvent themselves, stay competitive with a new wave of talent, you know? Yeah, and it's, I mean, I've learned so much from, from you know, Bob and Chris both, but um, they've been through it. You know, they've been through it since they were 13 years old, you know, getting their first world world titles, world records, and they know what it means to kind of have longevity in a sport. Right. Like for it to go through the cycles, how do you stay ahead of the curve? How do you at least stay with the curve? Yeah. I mean, that that's definitely a challenge in this sport is technologies advance, you know, speed controls change, which, you know, can completely change the game for somebody. It can give somebody that had the complete advantage to having a complete disadvantage or vice versa. You know, you can... Sorry, minor parenthesis. Do you think that's what happened 08 or 09 for you? Well, for, sorry, just to give some context, like that's when Zero Off came out, right? Yeah, so Zero Off came out, I think the first time we had it was <laughs> Dabbler Shores 2006. We skied qualifying rounds with Perfect Pass. We skied head to head with Zero Off. Wow. Nobody had skied with Zero Off. No one even knew what it was, really. I mean, a couple of people had it. So right away, I mean, I won that tournament. Oh, you won it? Yeah, so for the first, I think, two years, I think uh, two, two or something years, I won every event that had zero off. Interesting. Because it wasn't in the beginning. It wasn't all zero off. It was some perfect pass, some zero off. That's true, that's true. Zero off came along, and I took to it. I don't know. It always suited the way I skied for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, some people it did not suit very well. Yeah. Some people had a very, very hard time with it. But um, what was the question? Yeah, no, why maybe, because you had mentioned that like in 2008, you had a great season. Yeah. Then 2009, not so, not so great. And if I'm not mistaken, in terms of like commercial availability of zero off, those yeah. were kind of the years. Yeah. And I, you know, I got with Malibu and they were, they were great. They had two ECMs on the boat so I could have both perfect pass and, yeah. and That's zero right. off. Um, so I was able to train with both. So, you know, they gave me the advantage with that, but really the, the season of two, eight, 2008 comes back to the kind of changing of the guard with HO. Right. So we may want to put that Save one that on for later, put that one on freeze for a minute because yep. 2008 was kind of, uh, the, the peak of that drive. Sounds good. Yeah. So, I, just, I was just, I thought I was piecing something together, but clearly I didn't. Yeah, no, it, it a little bit of a longer story, but yeah, we'll get to it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the episode so far. Um, as you can imagine, we took a lot of breaks because we spoke for over four hours. So I'm taking the opportunity to use this break to tell you to subscribe to the Waterski Bits. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them on Spotify, on Apple. Uh, and what I'm doing with the Waterski Bits is essentially taking... Uh, the best parts or parts of interviews from the extensive vault by now that I have with the Waterski podcast and just put them there 
five to ten minutes bits. You know, there's a Marcus talking about how the idea of the free ride came about, rather than some of Nick Parsons' ideas about skis, uh, how Robert ended up winning the Pan Am Games. So there's a bit of um, extracts from the interviews that I've done so far. Now, why would you want to subscribe to that? Well, easier listening in terms of five to ten minutes, and I will be posting parts of 1.0 interview with Will exclusively on the Waterski Bits. So these are not going to be bits taken from the three parts that you listen to this podcast, but stuff that he said and we spoke about uh, right before my computer decided to abandon us. So really, if there's an incentive to subscribe to the Waterski Bits, I would say that's the one, uh, or the most recent one at least. So yeah, go. You can find the Waterski Bits on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, and all the good other rest of apps. Break over. Let's get back to the interview. All right. So let's take a little step back because uh, I like what you said about your conversation with Bob in terms of like longevity. But a career has to start somewhere, right? And I think you were telling me how your first World Championship was a Junior World Championship. Oh yeah, you have. I mean, this isn't a secret now. But we're on podcast two point Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the first, you asked me, "Is there a point in my career that you want to re, you want to prime that one again?" What did I ask you? You asked me, "Is there something that stands out in your career that maybe influenced you, or something that happened that have something along those lines?" Yeah, it was. Yeah. Maybe maybe a, a setback. A little bit of a setback or a turning point, you know? Yeah, and I, and it come, for me, it comes back, the one that stands out earliest in my career, I'd say, was the Junior Worlds in 1998. Right. And it was in Dijon in France. And I, I believe I was, I didn't realize, but I think I was ranked number one in the world in Junior Salem. I didn't really have access to a ranking list, but somebody had told me. And, um, you know, we get there, and for the prelims, it's, it's basically like... Um, you know, the, the last worlds we had in France, whereas white capping tailwind first pass, like, what do you do? Right. And, um, at the time I didn't really have a ton of experience of, of how to really deal with that. I didn't have necessarily have my team around me. The, the culture in England was very much, you've got your team captain and, you know, the parents are forcefully encouraged to back the fuck off basically. Okay. And for me, I'd say that, that, wasn't really a great thing because I grew up skiing with my parents. Like my dad was like, you know, here's my support system throughout my, my whole junior side, you know, right. Training and be my driver. And he wasn't a water skier growing up, but he would try he'd do everything, anything he could to make it work. And, but he also was a, an athlete. So he probably understood what it's required to perform at a certain level. Right? Yeah. So, so now knowing what you know about sport, like that's sometimes way more important than to have somebody that knows what's going on or, or really understands the sport. Cause that can cloud what is actually going on. So yeah, my, my dad was a phenomenal athlete, grew up rugby, you know, England trials. He was at the top level of rugby in England before it became professional. Yeah. Um, and like stories as a kid was, you know, he would, He'd cycle to rugby practice, which wasn't close, you know, like 10, 15 miles, do his rugby practice, two and a half hours, whatever, running, all this kind of stuff, and then cycle back. So I, I grew up around somebody that was definitely an athlete, and, you know, definitely he prided himself on, on being the athlete, and he was 
regarded within you know his community hardest tackler in the league all these all these kind of cool things yeah but anyway back to the the world story i he was encouraged to not be around the start doc you know because i think in the past they maybe had bad situations with parents where they were kind of a pain in the ass which you know they still are they still are it can be a thing but my dad wasn't that guy like he knew what was going on and he um but i had to make a decision you know white capping tailwind you know i the scores weren't very high as maybe like deep 35 to make 12 to make the final i'm like well it'd be nice to have a couple of passes like normally i go out at 14 so i'll be just like basically 14 13 12 that'd be my third pass right it doesn't feel like enough passes so i somehow you know i asked my team coach i'm like well should i maybe i just go out at 18 you know got long line they'll give me 18 16 14 13 it gives me my four passes before my hardest pass which i still like to do this day oh yeah it sounds like a great idea you know why wouldn't that be a good idea Right. an easier pass like almost guaranteed to run it well kind of short story long um i i come around one ton of slack line you know way too much line to deal with came out to two and i fell at two so one and a half buoys dot speed junior worlds that was a pretty right. tough pill to swallow yeah it's a pretty hard one yeah and so. when in in podcast 1.0 uh i remember asking you how that experience was what you learned and you told me ah, probably that you don't start a long line. Like that was the extent of, I guess, of your analytics at the time. Yeah, it was like I didn't, I think because I, I, you know, you kind of progress past it. So maybe you forget, but I hadn't been on long line for many, many years. Years, maybe, yeah. maybe a couple of years. I don't even know, like a year or two. And especially not in those kind of conditions. If I did it, it was probably on a calm day and it was just because I wanted to run more past. Like it wasn't a big deal, but I... I definitely learned a big lesson on that day that just because it's a longer line doesn't mean it's an easier pass. Mm-hmm. And and that definitely rings true now. You know, I I couldn't even, for me, I think I'd struggle to start at 14 even. Right. You know, I, I never do it and I, I know I've done it from time to time. I'll, I'll do it because like before Worlds in in France, I, I went 14 a few passes just because I knew it was going to be windy and these kind of things just so you know what to expect yeah yeah it, it, it takes a little you know line comes a little earlier yeah all those weird things of the past that you don't normally train right yeah it's like the boat's always going to be on you you're not going to rely on that freedom or the release from the boat just just be comfortable with never feeling early and free yeah but, yeah but that was that was kind of a early slap in the face crush to the ego a, a, quite a young age but I you know at the time I wasn't even really that focused on slalom I thought the jump was going to be my event and you told me you actually did okay in jumping that event no yeah I ended up end up coming fourth I got a pb it was like 46.8 meters something like that but I I remember in practice I was like oh shit you know there's no way in the world anyone in the world is going to be jumping more than 46 47 meters like I'd heard stories of Dane Puxty and Jimmy Seamers you know, they would jump in 53, 54, but I'm like, they're in like, you know, bullshit American tournaments. Right, like Cheating, right. driving. There's no way they're going to come over to Dijon in France and, and jump that far. Well, they did. You know, they came over there and I think Jimmy jumped 54 and him and Dane had the most epic battle I can ever remember. Wow. Jumping, you know, 53, 8, 54, 55, those kind of, I mean, that was exciting. That was was Tom at that tournament or was he already under 21? He was already out. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I only had one junior world, so I'm a, I'm an even, even baby. Yeah. So I, 
um, I didn't get the two. Yeah, neither did I. No. Yeah, my brother got one as well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so no, because I was thinking back, well, then you didn't even have your brother. Because, you, know, no. you know, I understand the parents' um, sort of like situation with the national team, mm-hmm. hey, stay away, let, let the skiers do the skiing. Yeah. But at least if you had your brother who would have been a skier, you know, at least you could have asked him, hey, Tom. 18 or 14 or 16 or whatever right yeah but you didn't have that no i didn't have that and we didn't we didn't really have the strongest junior team at that time either you know it was he was like not on the guy's side anyway i think we had a really you know strong tricker and a yeah couple of girls that were pretty good um but i was you know i was the kind of the guy on the team mm-hmm. essentially yeah so i didn't i didn't have i didn't have a support system for that decision which right. now um, you know, as I, as it kind of progressed past that, some, quite a few things changed in my life as far as, you know, the way the funding came into the British Federation and I was going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Explain so, a little bit of that. Like, were you already funded by the time you went to junior worlds? The, so how, how it used to be, you know, before, before like 1999, I'd say, um, all like international events were funded, mm-hmm. but nothing beyond that. So it wasn't like we had training funded or trout. I mean, our, our trip was free essentially. Right. They paid all that stuff. But then after that, we got a um, funding in the British Federation called National Lottery, which yeah. was you know world class performance, which was funded by National Lottery, and we had a performance de- director, John Wood, and that was the biggest turning point in my scre- my skiing, and that that made the biggest change as far as or the biggest turnaround for me from being kind of a clueless skier to being exposed to certain things outside of my bubble yeah because you know I, I grew up very insulated in that way you know, yeah I didn't get to ski with many people outside of my bubble which got me to a you know a good level you know I would say <laughs> <laughs> but but then after that it it really it really progressed after that you know, we got some coaches from outside. We had Matt Reaney would come to our lake for <clears throat> a couple of weeks at a time. Mike Ferraro came, Ray Stokes would come. And one thing, you know, and it was always encouraged to come to our place at Hazelwood because the site was always set up. You know, we always had the best boats. The ramp was always set up. We could house people. It wasn't that busy in the week. Yeah. Um, but for me, just being getting exposed to those people that already had international exposure was pretty big for me and taught me some pretty big lessons. Now, was that what made you change from, yeah, I'll ski, but I'm really into playing. Was that sort of like extra addition or by then were you already a little bit more, shall I say, committed to tournament water skiing? No, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was committed until, until that, sh- that switch because it went from being you know, family coached Whereas, you know, it, it's pretty well known that sometimes a father-son relationship can be a little testy at times. Yeah, particularly if you throw sports in there. You, 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 yeah, you throw sports and then you start to throw puberty and all that fun stuff. And I know best and who are you? you know, right. Maybe it wasn't. The, um, but then, you know, it was nice to have somebody come from the outside and kind of take that pressure off us in a way. And... It, it kind of forced us to train because they had this coach come in from out of town, out of state, out of country. They're here for this. 
you're going to be here, you're skiing, we're skiing for a purpose, training for a team, training for a competition. That was probably the biggest change in my life. And at that time, because of the funding, they opened the whole world up for different things. So we had access to psychologists, personal trainers, nutritionists, um, fitness tests, all these kind of things that would essentially any other pro athlete would be doing. Yeah. So the the criteria that's put on us was very similar to the criteria of say like the national rowing team. You know, they'd be expected to do these things, meet these criteria, do you know the funding is there, we are providing you with the services, you make sure you maximize those opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, every year, once or twice a year we'd have to do a fitness test and John would be like, Okay, you gotta you know, you gotta make yourself available for this, train for it if you can. First one was miserable because I don't really know what the hell I was doing. So I was hungry on the way. So we stopped and got McDonald's. Right. So at <laughs> sure that, that point, well. I, I, it's, like looking back, I mean, you don't know what you're doing. It's a fitness test. Like what, what can a fitness test mean? Right. I mean, you can't think that you're going to be on a rowing machine trying to do lactic threshold sprints like an hour after eating a McDonald's. And you can imagine what happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that McDonald's did not stay in my stomach. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Or we're doing, you know, running bleep tests or all these things which really at the time didn't make any sense to me like i didn't i didn't see the value in it i didn't know it was important now if i did it it would be a completely different story right i would know exactly how to take full advantage of that situation i would know the information i wanted i would know if the test wasn't you know if i didn't think it was relevant for our sport i think i'd be able to communicate in a way like hey i think we can tweak it this way and this way and it'd become more appropriate for us yeah, so probably part of the fact that you have more knowledge about the sport, you're obviously an adult now, Yeah. you've had experiences, right? And I'm assuming the, the, the thinking might have gone something like, how is this going to help me run more buoys? Like you didn't see it. No, I didn't see it at all. Uh, yeah. yeah just, I'm like, well, you had me doing a running bleep test, I only ski for like five or 10 minutes and it's exactly. like 16 seconds. Like, but they, I mean, they were just trying to get some sort of an average measure of, you know, fitness rather than yeah trying trying to get benchmarks so then maybe they can apply it and you can make improvements from one year to the next yeah i mean that's that's all they were doing but it it just showed me it showed me that there was a whole different side to different sports mm -hmm. and you know for a lot of years after that i took it very seriously and i i trained and i i put the time in because that's kind of how you know i would say uh the perception of you in the ski world, right, nowadays, or I would say in the last 10, 15 years, is of someone that works extremely hard, extremely dedicated to the craft. So it's interesting to see, to hear that, like, in those early days, it was a bit of like, ah, you know, you didn't see the point in that, right? Yeah. Well, I've, I, <laughs> I mean, my, my dad and my brother will laugh because I, I didn't like to kind of get my heart rate up when I was a kid. So I, the big thing we did was we played squash. Like my dad was a phenomenal squash player and my brother was really good at squash as well. And mm -hmm. I didn't beat them. I think I maybe brought, beat my brother one time in college at squash, but I think he was just going easy on me. But <laughs> I, just, I just didn't want to do it. I don't, I don't know why. I was kind of lazy. wasn't, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember you know, some of my friends that would be on the cross country team or you know, all those kind of things. I just... I didn't, want to, yeah, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I just mm. wanted to kind of play on the back leg with three people behind a boat. and Yeah. A little funny thinking back how we can change, right? 
Yeah, and I, and I, I don't really know exactly what the shift was. It was probably, um, probably just having some of this exposure, and then you, you kind of get to, you know, you meet different people, or you. I think, I know my dad had been saying it to me for quite a few years. It's like, you know, he had he had his experience with rugby and his his different sports. But if you want to improve, you've got to take the off water as serious as you do on the on water. Yeah. So I always had that ringing in the back of my mind. I never took advantage of it when he said it. Sorry. But I think the the words were still there. And then when I got a little bit older, and I, you know, some of this world class stuff, and then we we had some personal trainers that wrote up programs for us and I got to work with some really cool people that did stuff that I thought was really creative and fun and challenged me in a way that I didn't think I could be challenged. Yeah. You know, I got to work with a guy called Kai Fusa and he works with a lot of the top golfers in the world. So he, you know, we, he, when I was in college, he would, you know, I'd fly into Orlando, he's based in Orlando, He'd write me up a program, you know, six, six or twelve week block. Come here. And then um, I'll go go back to college, go back to Reds, and I'll do my so physical training part, physical yeah. training off the water stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now you throw in some pretty big names in water skiing, like Matt Rini, Ray Stokes, Mike Ferraro. I mean, these are like well-established, highly regarded coaches. Do you remember any sort of like? maybe early eye openers that they give you something yeah. they were like, Whoa, like, why did I, why have I not been doing this forever? You know? So for some reason, I, like I, I didn't use a wing until I ran 38 off. I remember that. And I, I went to British nationals and I won British nationals and I ran 30, 38 off 11. I got one at 10, and I won nationals. And around that time we started skiing with Matt Reaney and Matt's like, you know, I think you probably need to put this wing on. I think right. it, it might help you a little bit. And um, I remember putting that on and it went from, you know, scrapping a 38 to then starting to chip away at 39. But a lot of my bad habits came from not having a wing, I would say. Like I didn't have the control of load, I didn't have the control of speed. So a lot of my big counter rotations or jumping on the front of the ski or some of these things that I still to this day have a hard time to get rid of could be due to some of that stuff. And, yeah, it's interesting. And it's not that it, anyone was doing it, you know, because they were trying to hurt me. It's just what we believed to be true at yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. And so, because you told me in 1.0 how, like, your early experiences with testing equipment, you know, which is obviously an in yeah. integral part of what you do now, was to just unscrew mommy's fin block, put it on your ski, and see how that felt. Yeah. So I all those fins and no wings, or were you just taking the wing off? I don't think they had wings. I mean, this was... This was before, this was like 1994 or something. You know, we all had the same similar skis with the same fin box, but everyone's fin was a little bit different. Didn't have calipers, didn't have any of that stuff. But I was like, well, I want to try different stuff. So I basically take my mom's fin off, put it on my ski, take my dad's off, put it on my ski, my brother's, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I probably didn't mess with Tom's that much. But I remember I, the one I skied the best on was my dad's fin. And he's like, well, that doesn't make any sense because it's set up for me. You know, right. but now we know it's, you know, it's just a number and it's a feeling and, you know, sometimes. Right. Now, going back to those years, you had one experience that really opened your eyes in terms of equipment. Yeah. So when in 99, we were training in England and the weather just 
got so bad. But the whole team, back when we had funding, decided to fly out to Florida. We had the opportunity to go ski with Andy at his place. And um, I got there and I was skiing on my ski and my, my ski broke. And, you know, what do you do? I'm there for like three weeks. I don't have another ski. And Andy was like, well, you know, try my ski. I was like, oh, shit, okay. He's like, but when you put your foot in the binding, don't laugh. I was like, what the hell is he talking about? So I put my foot in the binding, and there's like, there's no padding on the inside. The bottom of the plate's been cut out. Like, my foot's like directly on the ski. Okay. So if you know Legends of Andy's bindings, they're like basically flip-flops with no base on them. It was kind of a trippy, trippy thing at the time. But I remember, you know, my best was maybe one at 39. British national champion, hot shit. Um, And I went out there, and I basically on his ski went out and I ran 39 back to back and then from that point forward I, my head was kind of blown like I didn't know I came in after the set and I was like hey what's the chance of me getting the ski he's like has no chance like right you know he basically like took the ski off me as quick as he could <laughs> but for the next couple of years I was like well I guess that's how a ski's meant to feel you know and I, I went on some pretty big searches to try and find you know obviously I I got the ski I thought that was, you know, it was a 68 O'Brien and then try to set it up, trying to learn how he had it set up. But, you know, it, it took me a while to figure that one out. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, but, and uh, to me, the, 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 the way I know you, that was probably the beginning of the journey you've been on for the last, I don't know, 20 years, right? Since of like trying to better understand equipment. Yeah, so I... You know, I knew from when I was 16, I guess I'm, I guess I'm capable of running 39 off. You know, I, I did it in practice and from what I know, anything from my childhood, if I can do it in practice, I'll do it in tournament. Right. You know, I learned that as a young age and I, I'm pretty sure Andy wasn't weaving for me. Um, so I knew I could do it technique wise. I'm like, well, I guess I'm good enough. I guess I'm, I don't have to work on technique that much. All I got to do is figure out the ski thing. Um, so I kind of went on this search and I, <laughs> I remember I'd, I'd like sand on a bevel and like, what, what the hell business did I have sanding on a bevel? I didn't know the first thing about it. I just know that Andy had like a white strip on his one, three, five. I didn't now looking back, I'm like, I don't know if he had it sharper, softer, was it flatter? Did he have more crown? Was it bigger, smaller? Like could have been infinite amount of things. Exactly. But th- it kind of set the ball rolling for me is that, Obviously, there's something that could be on my foot that could be a lot better than what I have. So if I'm not to the point where I'm running 39 off, then obviously the ski's not good enough because I'm good enough because I've done it. Yeah. So that was kind of a big, a big thing for me and maybe started that whole, whole trend towards tweaking with equipment and, and these kind of things. You know, got back and you know, dad bought me a caliper and we kind of got those things, you know, started, started to get figured Trying out. Trying to figure out. Had the notebook, had the... And all these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And so from those years, uh, if I'm, if my memory doesn't fail me, two or three years more in, in Europe, I'm assuming, you know, still being in this system, doing European championships uh, and all these sort of things. And then eventually uh, moved to the U.S. for college. Yeah. So I um, went, to, went to Bennett's for a fall and then in 2001 or 2002 started college. Um, and it was basically just following my brother at that point. He, you know, from England, he went to Bennett's and he, he trained there and 
you know, like I grew up training with my brother, so I'm, you know, I wanted to follow him. I wanted to continue training around or be, be around him to be training. I mean, he was always the guy I looked up to as a kid and, you know, tried to emulate or beat. <laughs> right. In a sense, you know, he was my carrot my whole life and he was two years ahead of me and he was stronger and, you know, better in a lot of events. So we, yeah, we went to Bennett's and then he went to Lafayette. So then the natural progression for me was to then go to Lafayette. Yeah. Do the college thing, yeah. which I didn't know. I didn't know anything about college skiing. I didn't know if it was going to be, I, I wasn't necessarily like a good student as a kid. Like I didn't particularly do very well in high school. I was a bit of kind of got in trouble. I was a little bit misguided, maybe hung out with the wrong crowd. So college was never really on the table for me, or at least I didn't think it was, it wasn't my goal. Um, my goal is always, I'm going to be a professional water skier. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Then these, you know, the opportunity came along. Um, brother went there. He was enjoying it. Met some of the guys that were on the team. They were like, "Hey, it'd be great if you came on the team too." And yeah. stacked team at the, in those years. I mean, the, if you want to drop some names, there were a lot of great skiers there. Oh, I mean, man. Dane, who you remember from Junior Worlds. Yeah, Dane. Yeah, I remember that name. So I was, you know, I was pretty keen to go hang out with him and train with him. And cool guy, um, Trent Finlayson. Everyone knows him these days. Um, we had Mandy Nightingale, my brother. We had. Felipe Miranda, Michael Anderson, Casey Mama. Like we had a really stacked team. Yeah. Just a great a great group of guys to guys and girls to kind of grow up with, I would say. And in a way I'd say that college kind of saved my life. Hmm. It 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 took me out of um I guess it made me believe that I wasn't like the stupid kid from high school that wasn't really capable of getting an education. It was never really my thing. Okay. You know, I, I, I never had anything in my childhood to tell me I would be any good at school. You know, I, I pieced it together. I got enough qualifications to make me eligible to go to college, but it wasn't like, you know, high school, a student knew exactly on a plan what I was going to do the whole way through. Yeah. It wasn't like, Maybe in the skiing bit, the progression made sense and you were, you know, making certain steps that made you look forward, but in terms of school, maybe not so much. Exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't see a path in school. I mean, I didn't see the, I didn't see it in my future in a way. I mean, it was just probably the random encounter that my brother had to bring him to college that brought me to college. Yeah. Probably if, if he hadn't gone to Lafayette, there's no way I would have gone to Lafayette. So what was his encounter? How did he end up there? I mean, he was at Bennett's. I think that was it. Yeah. Probably like it happened to a lot of people is he, he needed a place to go ski. I don't know who his influence was to go to Bennett's, but you know, ended up there. Um, he, I remember him saying, you know, it was great to go there. And Jay was always great about having quite a, quite a big staff. So yeah. at the time they had a lot of great people to ski with, you know, it was like Nick Botcher and Danny Bud and some of these, some of these just great skiers. Yeah. And it was just a great environment to learn in. And especially when, when we were there, it was, it was like me, Tom, um, Damien, Danny Bird, Nick Botcher. There's like a ton of people that are taking it very serious. Lots of people that could jump over 200 feet. Yeah. Still not known for a slalom place. No. So I, I kind of get myself in this trap again where <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a wannabe slalom skier, kind of frowned upon because everyone wants to be on the jump lake. But like, 
know, Jay always stuck me in the slalom boat. He's like, well, you're the slalom skier. Like, you go in the slalom boat. But all I wanted to do was be in the jump boat. Like, I wanted to be the guy coaching jump. I wanted to be... Because jump was really my passion. Mm-hmm. As far as slalom, I always did well in slalom, I guess you could say. You could say. But I also did well in jump. So, you know, I'm junior European jump champion, you know, these kind of things. So I, I found myself, yeah, anyway, we're at Bennett's. Yeah, a bit of a conflict, right? And I, I would agree with that. Like, a B- Bennett's, obviously, Jay's, you know, highly regarded as one of the best jump coaches of all time. And I remember the walk to Lake 2. It's a bit of a lonely walk, you know? Like, yeah. you're going there. Maybe you have a buddy that is pulling you who's into slalom. And then there's all this action on, on the dock at Lake 1, people wanting to jump, you know? So it is a bit of a, I mean, and this is not to take away from Jay, actually on the contrary, like yeah. he had a slalom lake and yeah. it was set up and you could ski and it was a good slalom boat. But as you were walking towards Lake Two, you, I mean, at least I would turn back and see like nine jumpers on, on dock at Lake One just stoked to jump, you know? I mean, and that was me too. Like I wanted to be on Lake, I wanted to be on Lake One jumping. Like yeah. I was super passionate about Lake One jumping. And, um, it was pretty tough to find someone that could actually pull you slalom. I remember like asking Damien, be like rolling his eyes or right, right. I mean, Tom would always pull me, no problem. But then at that point he was already in college. So it would there, you know, kind of be there on the weekends. It was kind of a, it's kind of weird to think that it'd be hard to find someone that could pull you slaloming. Yeah. Or, or nowadays it's a little weird, being unthinkable almost. Yeah. 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 But, um, but ju- even, even at that point, I didn't think the jump was going to be out of my life. Like, so it was still, I still fit in on the jump lake. You know, I, I could jump over 200 feet. So I've, you know, I could hang with the boys in a sense. Oh yeah. You got the ticket for Lake one. That's for sure. I, I got the, yeah, I got the Lake one ticket. It's okay. People wanted to ride in the boat when I ski. I mean, that was okay. That was nice. Um, and I always remember like one of my funniest jump stories was when I was a junior and it was back to, you know, my, my big rival, which was this Patrick Julian Esnard guy. Yeah. So I, I think I, I can't remember if I won, maybe I won Solemn. He was kicking my ass in overall because I was an overall skier as well. And then it came to the jump final and he was after me and I was, I'll never forget what he said to me. Like he had his jump stuff, I had my stuff on. He's like, you have really good technique, but you do not have the balls to beat me. Oh, oh, oh. I was like, you motherfucker. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. That's a strong thing to say on the dock. That's a str- I, it was a very strong thing to say on the dock before the jump final because if I've ever had a fire lit up my ass, was on that day. I remember I went out and I jumped like 50.7 meters, white capping crosswind, like no reason to be jumping very far in those conditions. He went out, he did not jump as far as me. And I ended up beating him in overall by 0.6 of a company. What? So I beat him in jump and overall, and I'm, I don't remember if I won slam or not. I didn't really care at the time. I was there for overall. But wow. I was kind of like back to my legendary jump, one of my better jump jump feats. Interesting one. Interesting yeah. one. But so anyway, it's, it's yet again in another place where slalom is maybe not the most done event. Yeah. And you went. You decided to go. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I, I didn't really know where else to go. It's funny because I, I don't, a lot of the things I did were, were revolving around jump. You know, we had Ray Stokes as a coach. Yeah. I mean, we were literally jumping like four times a day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you'd ride your skis a couple of times, you'd do some single cuts, you'd do some double cuts. Yeah. So we're like, 
And then maybe somewhere in there you'd throw a slalom set. And tricking was off the board. If Ray was in town, you weren't tricking. But um, so to be in a place where slalom wasn't necessarily the focus wasn't a big deal to me. I was like, I'll kind of piece this together in a way. And I remember there and then Sully moved back to Bennett's. So I was like, oh, sweet. Like there's this other guy that's like super committed to slalom and he wants to get into it. And, and we ended up doing some skiing together. Nice. And, and that was kind of nice. Yeah, that kind of picked up the whole me like the energy level of skiing and mm -hmm. having somebody else that's as serious as i am trying right. to do it yeah no that makes a difference right when you get to train with someone that is maybe yeah possibly at your level but even if not that just like passionate like you to wanting to improve in what you love right? yeah because i'd never actually been around a slum specialist like in my i can't even think of anyone in my you know growing up where i was training with somebody or skiing or in the environment of somebody that was a slum specialist mm-hmm So I never really had that. Um, I think my fear was always if I if I quit trick and jump, then there's gonna be too much pressure on slalom. I'm not gonna be able to cope with that pressure. Right. And it is something about having three events, and knowing you've you've you know if you mess up in one, coming back to the junior world scenario, you've still got another event where you can potentially do something and salvage a weekend. Yeah, yeah. Even and I was even defend like I'm thinking back of my experience, but like. I was an overall skier, but I was way better slalomer than the other two. But just the fact that I knew I had to focus on three, yeah. put the pressure out of just one. You yeah. know, It wasn't necessarily like, oh, if I screw up slalom, I still have tricks and jump. Maybe it wasn't that. It was just like I got slalom, and then in the afternoon I have tricks, and tomorrow afternoon I have jump. So I didn't have enough mental energy to get nervous about slalom, yeah. right? I think that's where a lot of my stuff transitioned when I stopped tricking and jumping. So in 2003 is basically when I when I ended the the whole overall beyond college stuff. Right. Because I started a couple of years of that. But um, but in that time, I, I quickly realized if you if you cut out trick and jump, you got a lot of free time, a lot of available energy. There's only so many times you can slalom. Right. And I remember initially I was like, okay, I'm going to slalom three times a day. I just remember like my back being jacked up. Then I'd have to take like weeks off because my back was, you know, all tweaked out. Yeah, that transition isn't easy. Yeah, but I think that's when I really got into the gym stuff. You know, I, yeah, take, you know, doing quite a bit of running, got into the biking, then, you know, gym seven days a week, twice a day. That was kind of my program for. Gym quite. seven days a week, twice a day. Yeah, well, that explains a few things. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like run or bike to the gym, and then. Um, go pretty early so I go in the morning before school it's in college and then do my gym thing so it was like broken up so I had like a, a arm day leg day yeah all this kind of stuff I like to hit the speed bag in the in the boxing kickboxing room yeah Yeah. well later on they got that but in the beginning they only had it in the basketball area uh, so okay. it was like in the back so you'd have all the all the guys that were doing their pickup basketball game, and I'll be in the back corner hitting the speed bag. Yeah, I remember that. I they still that. had it when I went, yeah. Yeah. Did they still have the one at the ski lake? They, I bought, they had one at ski lake when I went. Yeah, because yeah. I bought the one at the ski lake. Oh, and put it up that there. comes from you. Yeah, okay. I bought that one. Yeah, because I, I liked it. It was like such a good shoulder arm workout. Um, yeah. But, but let's but, go to, to the beginning, because you told me that that first year at UL wasn't the easiest, actually, right? Like, the, you had a transition to make even, like, academic-wise. Yeah, because, I mean, kind of like I said earlier, I wasn't, I definitely was not a studious child. Like, I didn't, I didn't really know what it meant to study, or I, I, I never figured it out. 
like I never figured out how it was to, you know, process the information in class and then try and get it to a test. Yeah. So I had had nothing to fall back on when I got to college. Um, I knew the guys, you know, kind of met the guys on the team, but not that much. We're starting to hang out a little bit, but the first test comes around pretty quick. You know, first couple of weeks, you're going to have a test. And I remember I flunked, I failed every one of my tests. Mm -hmm. I was like, shit, you know, I was kind of down and out. And some of the guys on the team saw that and they're like, Hey, you got to come, you know, we go study here. We study at Bourgeois Hall. Yep. You know, most nights we'll be there. If not there at the coffee shop or wherever library, if it's, we've kind of had these few spots. Like we're not at one, we're at the other. Didn't have cell phones at that point. So I started, you know, studying with Dane and Trent and, you know, a lot of the guys that were, had been there a couple of years and kind of learned from them. And then in the first one, 1.0, you asked me who was like one of my bigger influences when I got to college. I made yep. the turnaround and I, right off the, the first guy that comes to mind was Trent Finlayson. Just because like that guy is wicked smart, but um, his dedication to the studies was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Mm -hmm. Like the way he would, you know, write out his notes, study his notes, break them down, make them more understandable. And he, in a way, he kind of took me under his wing and was like, hey, well, this is how I'm doing it. Just kind of do it like this. Right. You know? And then Taught from, you a system. Yeah, it kind of, yeah, it kind of gave me, gifted me a system to, yeah. to make it through college. And, you know, I refined that over time and I got, I got more efficient at it and it, it became something I became really passionate about. You know, I went from being this person that didn't have any confidence in my ability as a student to then suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm making good grades, making B's and making A's. I'm top of the class in a lot of them you yep. know, throughout the, the whole end of my, especially throughout the end of the, the school career. But it, I think it also came, you have, there's a reason to be at school. Like in college, you've got to make a 2.5. At yeah. Lafayette. I mean, that's B's and C's. I mean, for somebody that's never got a B or a C in their life, that's quite a big ask. Right. I mean, it doesn't seem like it for a lot of people, but for me, it, it felt like a pretty big challenge. And I, for me to get that I, in the beginning, especially, I really had to study. You know, I, I put everything I had into that studying and it became my passion in life because, you know, it, kind of like we've always said the college skiing isn't just about myself it's it's about letting or or not letting down more than just myself there's, there's right. more people around you that are accountable for you being able to make it to nationals yeah and one of the barriers to nationals is the 2.5 which is awesome yeah i mean maybe if you didn't have that that carrot in front of you to have to get that great point i mean maybe i would have been happy with a you know c average 2.0 right. scrape through not challenge beyond, you know, not really find out what was possible. Yeah, and then obviously, like after that, that didn't become enough, right? Because you didn't end up on a 2.5. You kept no, you I, know, getting better grades. Yeah, I graduated with 3.8. So I, you know, I really, really turned it around. And it, it really became something that I was very passionate about. And let me ask you this, because this was certainly the case when I, when I went to UL, ski team. The, was there a culture of like, hey, as a ski team, we're good at school? when you went there because there was certainly when I went and I know for a fact that Ryan Gonzalez now is upholding that to a, to a high standard 
Right. No, it was, it was definitely the case. I mean, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, Trent was a 4.0 student. You know, you had, you had Dane and Mali and Brad was in um, architecture school. And, you know, we trained and we studied as a team. Yeah. And if someone maybe wasn't getting the grades that was right, then the whole team would almost insulate them and help them bring their grades up, hold them accountable, get them, you know, get them back out, get them into the library. Okay. We're going to be at the library here from here. We want to see you there. Right. And you know, okay, which, which subject are you struggling with? Because I think it, I mean, I know I, you know, I failed a math class in the beginning, but then after that, I never failed a math class. Like after the first one I failed, I got A's and every other one I got. Right. And I think it was because for one, getting to know the team and being comfortable with them and knowing it's okay to reach out and ask for help. That was probably one of the best things that happened to me. I know I was struggling with an English paper, so Dane kind of broke it down for me. He's like, okay, here's how you structure an English paper. If you follow this, pretty much through every English class, you're going to be okay. Right. You know, just little, little things like that. But yeah, academia was definitely a big focus in Lafayette. It was not, it was not an easy degree. Yeah. Just because you're on the ski team, that does not make it any easier. If anything, it makes it harder. You know, you've got commitments. I had commitments beyond the ski team. I had British water ski commitments. Right. Worlds, Europeans. Yeah, so it becomes like learning the balancing game, right? Yeah, so you have the, the collegiate stuff, which obviously is important because I'm, I'm assuming you had a scholarship. So, mm -hmm. you know, you want to contribute, obviously, because, you know, you're getting school paid. But also you have these other commitments with the British team. And then there's also academics. Yeah. and a sprinkle of you know social life in there so it becomes it becomes uh, I don't want to say overwhelming but certainly you know like there's there's a balancing game going on uh, but I know you've said that and I would totally agree best four years of your life right yeah yeah without it completely changed my life for sure saved my life um, got friendships that are going to last a lifetime experiences that will last a lifetime mm -hmm. um Going into it, I could never have dreamt that it became what it did. Like, I couldn't imagine that going to... I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of Lafayette, Louisiana. Me from, neither. You know, Showed up. From <laughs> Lincolnshire, England. Like, what the hell is Lafayette, Louisiana? Exactly. And of all places, I mean, talk about a culture shock. You know, you got the Cajuns there, and they're eating these little crawfish things, and they got their gumbos, and they're doing the Mardi Gras. They're speaking English, but are they really? Uh, is that really English? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, sha, baby. Like, like <laughs> coon-ass stuff. Right, right. But what a place. What a place. What an experience to be in collegiate skiing. Because we talked about it, like, at UL, we were taking it a certain way, obviously. You know, like, the goal was to win nationals as a team. But the vast majority of collegiate water skiing, it's, you know, you get recruited on campus because you skied on combos when you were eight or nine with, or behind grandpa's boat. Mm -hmm. And now there's this thing called co collegiate skiing. Come on, get on the team. We'll go to regionals. If we do well, we go to nationals. So actually, our experience is almost like an exception in collegiate water skiing, right? And I, I can speak for myself, but I'm sure you had a similar experience. I didn't know that. To me, I thought collegiate water skiing was, okay, there are these teams, they're all training, you know, we go to nationals, we try to win. And then you show up and there's, I don't know, Wisconsin Medicine, Speedo team at 7 a.m. Yeah. doing leg dances, you know, like, yeah. there's this also crazy weird stuff that I'd never seen before. Yeah, my, my first nationals, I just, or, or even 
this, you know, first college tournament, I assume that each team was maybe like a different country as far as, you know, it's got like Italy, France and right, right. Or, or England and we're all going to be at a similar level and we're all going to take it equally as serious. But that's not the case at all. I mean, nope. some of them are there just to, they're having a good time. They're in a club, you know, they're, they're able to get to nationals. They're good enough skiers or, or whatever. But I mean, the, since I was a, you know, when you're a kid, you get to ski with people at different levels, but you kind of get to a certain point where you don't get that exposure anymore. I mean, everyone's at a similar level, Europeans or worlds, like everyone's quite competitive. Right. But I remember the first college national or sorry, college tournament I went to was like, I was on the start dock and I always like to go early rotations. So I was always number one or number two in the rotations and like yep. go last. And it was like me and then the guy before me, it was like his first tournament and he was going to go out 15 off 30 miles an hour. And he's just like dancing and partying on the dock. And I'm like next on the dock and it was trying to run 39, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it like humbled the whole thing again. It brought it, brought a whole different angle on what the sport is or what it could be or, or a whole, I mean, a side of the sport that I'd never seen Yeah. because, you know, I was brought up in an environment that was very tournament based and competition based. And I was always around people training and competing, but then to be around the people that are just there for the fun of it and you start to realize that, oh, maybe this sport is actually something that you can just have fun with.